This is the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Amen. What makes life meaningful? I imagine that not many of us take pause to consider our lives in those terms, but I wonder how you would answer that question. What makes life meaningful? Or how do I know that my life is meaningful? After all, nobody wants to get to the end of their days and feel like it wasn't worth it. Likewise, I think at times all of us evaluate what's happening in life. We look at the responsibilities that we have, and in our more pensive moments, we think to ourselves, why am I doing all of this? What does it mean? What am I accomplishing? But what if... What if you could get a glimpse of the end of your life and then look backwards over all of your days and in doing so, it would allow you to rise above the individual situations or circumstances of your life, to steer through the thicket of your desires, and to see what is common to all people in such a way that you would be able to look at your experiences and see which ones are genuine and true and have lasting meaning for you. If you could do that, then you could ensure that your days would not be wasted. That you would see in every instance the opportunity for meaning. If you could do that, you would be able to decipher how all the different component parts of your life work together. Your desires and your temptations and your family and your spirituality and your money and even your age. And if you could see that, then you'd be able to interpret your reality, prioritize your efforts, and ultimately experience a meaningful life. 
This morning we start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes called The Meaningful Life. This book is considered to be wisdom literature in the Bible. It is wonderfully poetic, as we heard a moment ago. It's acutely perceptive, and it, it's going to help us to understand what a meaningful life really looks like in this world. And as the book begins, we're introduced to a man referred to as the preacher. And in verse 1, right out of the gates, he gives us the introduction and then into his theme for the entire book. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity. The preacher is writing from a perspective of one who has experienced it all who is looking back at the end of his life over his days, who's identifying the things that are common to all humankind, and he's doing so by making general observations about life, about the world, and about human experience apart from God. He's lived a full life. And it's interesting that he comes to this theme He's looking over all the things that people do, and he calls it vanity of vanities. It's kind of an interesting term, isn't it? It's an expression that we don't really use today. To say that something is vanity is to say that it doesn't have meaning. It's pointless in its nature. And the reason why is that In this instance, he's saying it's here one moment and gone the next. The root word for the word vanity is the same word that we use for our breath. When you go outside on a cold winter morning, you see your breath, but just for a moment, and then it's gone. Vanity is transient in its nature. Vanity is fleeting. Vanity is but a breath. And he doesn't just say that all is vanity as he looks over the course of human life, but rather vanity of vanities. (laughs) This takes it to the extreme. It's like saying the holy of holies, the most holy place. And as he looks over his life, the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is to say, the comings and goings of life apart from God under the sun to him seem meaningless. And in chapter 1, he applies this vanity to the topic of our work. And so think with me as he considers the nature of our pursuits in this life under the sun or apart from God. Verse 3, the writer says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And of course, the answer is nothing. There's no gain from every aspect of the work of man on earth. And then he gives us these examples of the earth illustrating his point of earth and sun and wind and water. A generation comes and a generation goes. Excuse me, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That's a curious phrase. Typically, we would say, as I mistakenly said a moment ago, a generation comes, and then a generation goes. 
We typically say and emphasize the fact that there is always another generation rising up behind as more are born and raised and trained and contribute. But here, he emphasizes the opposite. A generation goes, and a generation comes. For all of the hard work that happens in a generation, that generation will in the end, your generation will in the end die. But the earth doesn't seem to take notice. It remains, and it gains nothing. Or think of the sun and the wind. He writes, the sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises again. And the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. It's a curious thing when looking at the sun. It seems so glorious in its rise and so majestic in its setting and it takes this long, strong march across the sky throughout the day. But for all of its magnificence, it gains nothing. No progress. Because the next day it just starts back in the east again. And for as much as the sun seems to be set on its track that just moves across the sky, the wind seems to be moving freely, blowing this way or that, cooling some days and not other days. And yet, upon observation, the preacher writes that the wind seems to be stuck in a repeatable pattern as well. Circles the globe north to south, only to return to its circuits again. No gain. Some of you might feel that way in your jobs. The day after day, week after week, labor after labor, no gain. <laughs> this past week it was illustrated on a tweet that went viral when a man from Detroit, Michigan named Derek Lancaster, an Amazon truck driver, announced on Twitter in the middle of the work day that he was quitting his job. He was leaving his truck half full of packages on the side of the road, keys in the ignition, he was done. And the reason why? He was incredibly tired of working 13-hour days from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. Day after day after day. Wake up, go to work, go home, go to bed. Wake up, go to work, go home, go to bed. No gain. I wonder if you ever feel that way. Or how about the fact that the streams keep flowing, the writer says, but the seas never fill up. In the Middle East, the Jordan River flows down into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has no outlets to it. And for as many centuries as the river has flowed, for some reason the Dead Sea never overflows. No gain. 
And so it seems, says the writer, that things of the earth are constantly moving. There's perpetual motion. There's all kinds of activity. There's all kinds of things that seemingly would produce great gain, and yet the earth illustrates the human experience. For everything that we do, for everything that we strive for, for all of the things that we go after day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out, everything stays the same. And some of us might say, well, that seems self-evident in some ways, and I doubt it in other ways. But for most of us, it doesn't seem so self-evident. The words of a man written who has done it all, who has seen it all, who's tried it all, a wise man who's looking back over the things of his life, all the things that he has strived for, all the things that we strive for, and he says... Apart from God, people gain nothing from their work. And he concludes that just like the earth, people are in a cycle. We strive. It seems like there's never quite enough. All things become wearisome, verse 8. Man is not able to speak, verse 8. Man is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not filled with hearing. There's never enough. We keep going, but it seems as if we gain nothing. The earth illustrates the point, but human history does as well. And he concludes this section in verses 9 through 11. The human history shows Little gain, there's really nothing all that new under the sun. If you just sit back apart from God, make observations over the human experience, what has been is what will be, verse 9. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. When we look at human history, we have the same problems and very often offer the same solutions as those who have gone before us. We think, wow, nobody has ever experienced anything like this before. But the writer reminds us, human history too has a way of repeating itself. We say, no one has ever experienced a pandemic like this before. But not so. Many generations in many countries have experienced problems like this and even much worse. Whether it was the plague that ravaged the Roman Empire in the 2nd century or the plague that killed thousands in Germany and Europe in the 1500s or whether it was the Spanish flu in the early 1900s in which the nation went on lockdown. You think your quarantine was bad. It's not nearly as bad as some who have gone before us. But they overcame, but still it seems like no gain. Another pandemic comes. As the writer says, it has been already in ages before us. And I think that many of us desire to live in such a way that we make our mark on human history. Now more than ever, perhaps, that there is a sense in this sort of world of celebrity culture, a world where names are seen for thousands to observe, where pictures are ever before us of the experiences of life, 
where we want someone to know our name. We want someone to admire our experience. We want people to think fondly of us. But as verse 11 reminds us, that though you might achieve those things temporarily, people probably won't remember what we do. Verse 11 says there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You can accomplish seemingly incredible things in this life, and yet the generations that follow won't remember. (laughs) Statues are erected and statues are torn down. Inventions are built upon, but the original geniuses can only be found in dusty old books. Treaties are formed and millions of lives are saved, but the leaders of nations are forgotten. And the halls of universities are named after benefactors and luminaries of old, but even those names are changed as those people fade into the distant history. Woodrow Wilson accomplished as much as nearly any president of the United States during his incredibly difficult time in human history. He served as the president of Princeton University, as the governor of New Jersey, and then he became the 28th president of the United States of America in the year 1913. During his time in office, Wilson led the nation in World War I. He created the League of Nations. He lobbied for the Treaty of Versailles. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. And during his time in office, the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified, which gave women the right to vote. He also lived in a time when racism was common, and he was among those who had errant views and actions with regard to the races. He was racist. And two weeks ago, in the midst of the racial tensions of our country, Princeton University, the university of which he was a president, announced that it would be taking his name off the building, which was named in his honor because of his racial views. Today is probably not the day to debate who should have naming rights for buildings or which statues should remain standing and which ones should fall. But the point of verse 11 becomes strikingly clear. Woodrow Wilson had done incredible things. His actions probably saved the lives of thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. He advanced the cause of women He was, by all accounts, an expert in international diplomacy. He was one of 26 men in the history of the world to become the President of the United States of America. But even now, generations are moving toward not remembering. We could take much less controversial examples. George Whitfield born in England, served as a minister there, came to the United States, was one of the most effective evangelists in the history of our country. At one point in George Whitfield's ministerial career, it was estimated that he had preached to 80% of colonists in the United States. 
as many as 10 million people without live streams. Last week, University of Pennsylvania announced that they'd be taking down the George Whitfield statue in the courtyard because of history and they are moving to actively forget. And if we're honest about this, not only will people not remember our accomplishments, but our own families probably won't even remember. If I were to ask you this morning how many of you know the names of your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents, I would guess the number would be few unless you've been spending time on Ancestry.com. The fact is, is your great-great-grandchildren probably won't even know your name. And whether it's politics or treaties or inventions or ideas or laws or even our own families, we are always just two to three generations away from being completely forgotten. And because this is true, even though society looks different, even though technological advances have occurred, it seems, as the writer says, that there's really no gain. Life isn't more meaningful than it was before. And that's not to be morbid. It's not to be a fatalist. It's not to be a nihilist. It's not to be depressing to us. But just the opposite. He sets us up with this, with the realization that we're going to die someday, and that our accomplishments won't be remembered, so that we can helpfully, wisely look toward today and be pointed to what the most important things really are. That you can live life in view of your death, and that helps you actually live life to the full. Apart from God, people gain nothing from all of their work on the earth. And so where does that leave us? With some nihilistic view of life? If you could rise above the cyclical nature of human experience, if you could look down upon it and see how your labors fit into something bigger than yourselves, then you might be able to understand how these things relate to a meaningful life. Jesus asked this very question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's no gain apart from God, Jesus says. But with God, there is eternal gain. And so the principle or the lesson becomes something like this. Don't be rich on earth, but poor toward God. <laughs> Don't have great toils and labors and become rich on earth, but have a meaningless life in the end. Don't have it all, but be poor toward eternity. And the implications are many. 
let's just be very clear, the writer is not saying that you shouldn't work hard or that you shouldn't have a career or that your career doesn't matter because indeed it does. But he is saying that if you go through your life and you think to yourself that your career is the most important thing, this is the thing that drives you, that gathers your full attention and affections in all of the ways, then, my friends, you're mistaken. And if you think that you'll get to the end of your days, and after it's all fading into the distance, that you will think to yourself, the money and the accomplishment will be enough for me. Then you will find meaninglessness. Apart from God, people gain nothing from their work on earth. Because God's designed people in a way that they have a core purpose and desire and longing for true meaning. And so don't be rich on earth, but poor toward God. Don't be hardworking on earth, but lazy toward God. How do we view our work in light of the fact that God is the one who provides meaning? Well, we view our work as an extension of our gifts and abilities that God has given us to accomplish something greater than ourselves. Work is not just means to accomplish things, though it is. It's not just meant to provide for our families, though that's important. Work provides us a vehicle for the best types of investment. Eternal investment in people and in gospel. Apart from God, people gain nothing from the work on earth. But in Christ, you gain riches toward God in heaven. And so Jesus says in John 6, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. No gain versus great gain. Vanity versus eternity. Jesus takes the observations of life under the sun apart from God and in His coming, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, and in your life of faith in Him makes you rich toward this God and gives you meaning. And so He says again, do not lay up for yourselves in treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. Apart from God, people gain nothing from the work on earth, but in Jesus you gain riches toward God in heaven. Don't be poor toward God, but rich on earth. And I close with the passage that Pastor Marty preached some weeks ago. It's one of our favorite passages around here at Old North. It's a life verse for many. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in work. <laughs> the work of the Lord. 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, let's pray together. Father, help us in these coming hours and coming days to evaluate our approach to life and to our work. To be ever seeking meaning not in our accomplishments, not in our material possessions, not in our toils and labors, God, because as we see, there's no gain. But Lord, in you, there is eternal gain. Help us to see, to know, to feel, and to invest in this way. Amen.